The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. today as we continue one more time looking at this theme of the Bible itself, why we can trust it, how God gave it to us. Looking today more at the Bible from the standpoint of man's response to it. How do we respond to things that God has revealed? And there's certainly nothing more fundamental along that line than what we face Very early in the Scripture, in Genesis chapter 3, the actual account of the fall teaches about this, and it's certainly worth our taking a look at this from time to time and being reminded of what was happening here, what was the fundamental dynamic that we actually live out in our own lives. So I read from Genesis chapter 3, the first 15 verses to you today, Genesis 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, nor shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and it was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. The man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. The Lord said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. And the Lord said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And this is God's holy word. 
in John, we saw on many occasions where Jesus was telling opponents and friends alike, can you not see that what I'm doing is just what the Father told me to do? Or these words I'm speaking are the words the Father gave me to speak. In John 12:50 is one example where he said, whatever I say is what my Father has told me to say. And you got this impression over and over again that Jesus was saying, I am the keeper of the Word of God, keeping it exactly, obeying it precisely. If my Father said anything, I have done it and I will do it. Well, we know, of course, that we do not fulfill the Word of God the way Jesus did. And in fact, if our lives are summarized, many things can be pointed to that we have not conformed or kept. Bold, important things of the Word as well as subtle, lesser things. I remember one time riding with a funeral director to a cemetery, I think we were talking, and somehow the subject came up of people sometimes wanting to have recorded music played at the funeral home when their service was going on, and they would request something or even bring in a CD to have played that was some kind of a theme song to them. And the funeral director smiled at me and said, of course you know that most of us funeral directors have a CD on hand, so we can play one request we get a lot. Frank Sinatra's I Did It My Way. Hardly the theme of someone obeying the Word of God. Well, Genesis 3 is among the most tragic and yet most important chapters of the Bible. Its opening line sounds an ominous note of something coming that you know isn't going to be exactly pleasing to God when it says, now the serpent was craftier than any other being or beast the Lord God had made. This hints at disturbing things to come, for sure. And we learn, of course, what happens in Genesis 3 is what we call the great fall. What is wrong with humanity? We find that under the influence of a smooth-talking spiritual enemy, our first parents chose to challenge the Word of God, and they lost paradise as a result. Now, the problem is many people just write off Genesis 3 and say, well, you know, I just, it's some kind of a myth or a fable. After all, I, I decided that way back in Sunday school days when they had the take-home paper for me to have Eve talking to a great python uh, wound around the branch of a tree. What is this talking snake thing? And people will look at Genesis 3 and say, well, this is some kind of a fable. I don't have to believe in what happened here. And yet Romans chapter 5 says that sin entered the world through one man and death came by sin. The New Testament in Romans, in many other places, took Genesis 3 with complete seriousness as to what happened there and saw it as a historical occasion, not a fable. Now we, for 10 weeks, have been looking at the Word of God and asking how we got it, how God revealed Himself, what are the characteristics of it, why should we respect it. And today I'm asking us to think about the whole idea of believing and obeying it. 
simply seeing it, if we indeed believe the things we've been talking about, that God is speaking and we should be ready with an obedient, believing response. I ask you just to be reminded once again, first of all today, about the root of human opposition to the Word of God, which is displayed in this very basic text of Genesis 3. If time permitted, I'd I'd take you for a little while back to places like Ezekiel 28 or Isaiah 14. You might want to make a note of those chapters because both of those, we think, have some measure of information about the mysterious origins of Satan and his rebellion. Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14, you can read on your own. I'm not going there. But here are things that that tell us somewhat of a mystical way, but yet they tell us some kind of a rebellion happened in heaven. And a being that was close to God, who served God, decided he'd try to be God. And that, of course, is the one we call Satan. Now, we all wonder, and I always wondered, I must admit, from boyhood on in Sunday school, what am I supposed to make out of this serpent text? Is this a big python talking to Eve? Is that what I'm supposed to understand? If indeed that's it, it does create a fable-like quality to this passage, which makes it a little hard to accept. But I'm convinced that what we have here is not simply a talking snake. The word serpent is used here as a consistent Bible nickname for Satan or Lucifer. He's called that very directly in other places, Revelation 12.9 or Revelation 20, verse 2. We see phrases that say things like, that ancient serpent, the devil, who leads the world astray. Now, the problem is here that it isn't exactly sorted out for us when it says the serpent was more crafty or more subtle than any other beast. But what it does say is that he's set apart, he's different, he wasn't simply an animal. And if you would think of him as a snake, you need to notice that it's in verse 14 and 15 when Satan is being cursed by God that the Lord God says, you'll crawl on your belly and eat the dust. I am believing the text is leading us to understand that the serpent was not a snake, but something different when he first addressed the woman and when Satan came in this form. Well, why do I think that? Well, there's one reason I think it's because the Hebrew word for serpent is a very interesting and unique word, and it means something strange. It means shining one. Now, why, if this was a repulsive reptile, maybe some of you don't think reptiles are repulsive. I happen to be one who does. My wife and I, uh, a few weeks ago, went north up into New York State, and, you know, you go north of Williamsport and a little ways further up, uh, just before the New York border, you come to Clyde Peeling's reptile land. How many of you have ever seen that? You know, we always think, we see the sign, Clyde Peeling's reptile land, 10 miles to go. And I always say, why would anybody want to go to Clyde Peeling's? I would think he would have gone out of business a long time ago. This place has been there for years and years. And we drove by it uh, about a month ago, and there were 30 or 40 cars in the parking lot. 
Somebody doesn't think reptiles are repulsive. But here we have this word serpent, shining one. And it seems to remind us that Satan, if he is in the guise of this personality, was a rebel angel, a servant made by God to serve his purposes, who rejected that role and decided he could be something great on his own and rose briefly and then fell in his own vanity. Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14, if you check out those passages, portray him as a fallen angel and call him the model of perfection and perfect in his beauty. I think you have to see those things carrying over into whoever and whatever this serpent looked like. It wasn't someone repulsive to Eve. In fact, because he was able to assert his will upon her, you would think he was very persuasive. You know, a person that you're repelled by, one of these gruesome characters at the Halloween, you know, scare the daylights out of you people with the costuming, with the blood and the fangs and everything else. If that's what Satan was, why, Eve would have run in the other direction. We think he was beguiling to her. I I give you an example that I think at least helps me to understand this text. In 1998, there was a movie put out that I have found sort of a fascinating movie. It's not uh, one that conveys biblical truth, I won't say that, but it's an entertaining and interesting movie called Meet Joe Black. And it's a movie in which death comes personified in a young man to meet a billionaire and tell this billionaire, your time has come, you're going to die. Well, guess how they personify death? Not in some grim, ugly, you know, person that you would be afraid of. This 1998 movie had young, handsome, incredibly handsome Brad Pitt playing death. If you don't have any idea who Brad Pitt is, he's a very handsome guy, or certainly was when he was younger. I think something like that is operating here. A beguiling creature, fallen from heaven, appears to the woman and it speaks to her. She's not surprised that it, it speaks, this creature speaks. Did he have two legs and two arms? I have no idea. Only that I don't picture a python on a branch talking to Eve. The root of opposition here is Satan's opposition to the Word of God and his determination that we would not believe it or obey it or seek to be conformed to it. And that root portrayed here, we're told, was the fall into original sin that still infects all of us in the same way it did Eve. Well, secondly, we see here the master lie about God's Word. The master lie being, well, God really didn't mean what he said. Or he really meant something else. Or maybe it's up for negotiation. The Lord had given the man and woman broad permission. It was based on blessing. Look what I've given you. This incredible expanse of the garden with every kind of of fruit and everything. By the way, the tree didn't have apples on it. Another little myth. Nowhere says that the fruit was apple. Our Asian next-door neighbor gave Carol some persimmons yesterday. I had never seen a persimmon, had no idea what they were. 
And uh, we, had, we now have persimmons, a fruit I'd never been aware of or heard of it, but that's all. Well, here is God saying, I've made all kinds of delightful things for you to eat and enjoy. They're all yours. But I draw one line in the sand between myself as God and yourself as creature so that you would obey me. Don't touch this. This alone is not for you. The main thing God was saying was permissive and blessing, right? But how is it presented when the serpent says, did God really say you may not eat from any tree in the garden? He turned it into a snide insinuation that it was a nasty prohibition by God, not a gracious permission. And the tempters was saying, well, you heard what God said, but don't you know everything's negotiable? So let's go and negotiate with God and see what he really means. And then once putting the woman in that position, he puts his sword in and says, you will not surely die. A direct denial of God. You won't die. Just find out what God was really saying and and how much you can actually get away with. A direct assault on the integrity of God. God didn't really mean it. You You can find some different way around this if you need to. Eve, just trust your doubts. Go with them and see what terms you can negotiate with God. The serpent lied when he said you will become like God. They already were like God. They already were made in the image of God. They, they were, could communicate with the Lord. They had fellowship with the Lord, which the text implies was broken by this. They didn't become God-like. They became serpent-like when they obeyed what the serpent said. But isn't it true that I I don't suppose we even consciously think about it necessarily. We don't take it out and say, now I'm going to see what I can get away with from God. We just seem to think that we can always make things our own way. We don't have to bow to a standard imposed on us. We can say, I'll do it my way. I'll just join in with Frank Sinatra and say, I did it my way. And I'll get away with that. We might as well say, God, why don't you just move over and make a, make a place for me on your throne? I can give commands just as well as you. And I think this goes on subconsciously in our minds. We're not even examining it and saying, I think I'll disobey God now. We're just doing it all the time. We're just cutting a corner or shaving something off or saying, I can you know, get sort of a special deal here for myself. Well, the great lesson I want you to see is that at the heart of human sin always is some instinctive rejection of the Word of God. This original sin in the Garden of Eden infects us with its disease today. We have a breach of trust with God. We deny His Word. We skirt around it. We ignore it. We think, well, I need to be liberated And what really happens is we forge chains and shackles for ourselves. Let me just give you an example, an extended example of what this is like. In a really important big area of life, the whole area of human sexuality. Now that, of course, is 
spoken of in the chapter before, which I didn't read, chapter 2 of Genesis, is the great charter foundational chapter of what human sexuality is all about and how it's to be expressed. And God there presents his model, his master plan as the woman is created and the man and woman are brought together, and this too is not a fable. And God made a man and a woman and said, I've made something delightful here for one another, that you would delight in each other in companionship, in intimacy, in lifetime bonds. You will discover things in one another and in your union that cannot be found any other way and delight that cannot be experienced any other way. A man and a woman bound in covenant union for life. Not two men, not two women, a husband and a wife. And it says that that strange phrase, they were naked or completely exposed to one another without shame. That isn't just about their physicality. It's about everything about them. They knew one another as two beings could not know one another any other way. And God gave this wonderful gift, this model, for what a man and a woman are to be in biblical marriage. You know, it would, it would be as if, if this needed changing somewhere along the way, it would be as if we had our wonderful Constitution that our country's founded on. I hope you've read the Constitution. It's a good thing to do that every once in a while. Not a bad idea to do it before Election Day, as a matter of fact. But, you know, we have the original Constitution protected in a building in Washington. It's guarded, and, you know, there's, I guess, a couple original documents exist of it, and we certainly don't put them right out there and, you know, like the guest book and say, hey, have the kiddies come and write all over the Constitution or, or let people add in new phraseology if they want to or a couple new paragraphs. The Constitution is sacred. We have it once. We respect it. It's unique. It's marvelous. It's unlike anything any other nation has ever been founded on. And we say, look at that model. That guides us. We'll never change it doesn't mean we obey it. It just means we say that we look to it. Well, the same thing here in the Word of God. We have this model for human sexuality, and I I liken it to this. I'll give you another way to think of it. If you go to New York City, I'm sure many of you have already been to New York City since the 9-11 crisis, and you know the two World Trade Towers are gone, of course, but they built a huge building in its place. And if you go anywhere near New York City, within sight of it, within 10 miles, you look and you see one World Trade Center, it's called formally, or the Freedom Tower, people call it, because it's 1,776 feet tall. Did you know that? The exact height of the year of our country's founding. And there it is. It just dominates. It's enormous over the skyline of New York. No, No other building comes close to it. And if you were standing there five miles away from New York looking at the skyline, you wouldn't say, you know, if your friend said, look, there's the Freedom Tower. Look how tall it is. You wouldn't say, what? I don't see any tall building. You couldn't miss it because it's so huge, so dominating. I'm trying to tell you that that's the way God's commandment for sexuality is in Genesis 2. It is the dominating, looming revelation of God that stands over everything in the second chapter of the whole Bible. Now, 
I used to wonder, you know, why is it we had the patriarchs and, and they're marching along through life and picking up a wife here and a wife there and, and they knew that wasn't right to have three or four. Why didn't God have road signs all along the way and keep repeating like in Exodus and in Leviticus and in, you know, every couple miles down the road, Abraham would be told. Now, Abraham, one wife only, that's the way I want it. David, one wife only. Why did God allow them to just go their way and disobey? But then I realized every time they did that, every time they disobeyed that great model of marriage from Genesis 2, bad implications and bad consequences came into their life. And they paid for it. They paid for it for generations. Well, you see, I'm trying to say God put in his word an example like this, the model for marriage and model for sexuality. He didn't have to put up a billboard right outside Sodom saying, remember what I said to you in Genesis 2. When Lot was there and the men were pounding down his door with lust to have sex with other men, Lot knew that was wrong. He knew the dominating model that God had given a long time before. He knew there was no way to justify this shameful activity. God didn't have to pound the pulpit and say, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that. And so we have in Scripture these things that that stand there as monumental revelations of God. By the time Paul was writing in Romans, when he wrote Romans chapter 1 and said things like this, When humanity refused to know God as God, they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. And he went on and said, God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. And people say, well, where did Paul get that thing from? Paul, oh, he just, he just hated homosexuals. No. Paul looked at the skyline of the Bible and saw God's command for marriage and sexuality soaring above Genesis 2 and said, God has spoken. And he hasn't revised his will in the first century or the 21st century. Today, we seem to think we're different. We seem to think we have to revise everything because socially we're more sophisticated. We just know better than God. There's a different social situation. Oh, did God really say that? Well, that was for an ancient time. I think of a related example, a little bit different, but similar. I counseled a woman quite a few years ago, not a member of this church, so don't try to think who it was. You won't. I'm very careful about those kinds of examples. But I counseled a woman about her desire for me to preside at her marriage, an older woman, And she came and met with me and introduced what she wanted and told me a little about her life and claiming to be a Christian person. And she made known the fact, with no ifs, ands, or buts, that she'd been married twice before. So I thought, well, oh, twice a widow. No, I'm I'm not a widow. Both my former husbands are living. Oh, both divorced. Oh, well, what were the circumstances? And she told me, and Well, neither one was what we would call a biblical, allowable divorce. And that is either a divorce for adultery against her or abandonment, Matthew 19 or 1 Corinthians 7. She told me very frankly what they were, and we just couldn't get along, and we split up, but now I want to get married for the third time. 
So I got out Matthew 19 and 1 Corinthians 7 and led her through what God had revealed about these things and sought to explain it to her so that when I said, I can't do what you're asking, she'd see what the reason was. Well, she saw what I revealed, and we discussed it briefly. And then she said something like this, well, Pastor, yes, I see what you're saying. I see what the Bible says there. But, now listen to this. This is exactly what she said to me. Surely at the end of the day, in other words, after all that, that you've read to me, God wants me to be happy. And I was astonished. Or maybe I wasn't astonished, but I was. Wait a minute. No, didn't we just hear what Matthew 19 said, 1 Corinthians 7 said, but you, now you're telling me the overruling revelation of God is God wants you to be happy? I don't think so. And I had one mad lady leave my office, staring daggers at me. God doesn't rewrite his revelation because he wants us to be happy above everything else in disobedience to his word. We cannot simply renegotiate the truth of the Bible to suit our own conclusions or our own personal happiness, which isn't really happiness in the end anyway because we always suffer for violating the commands of God. In conclusion today, folks, Our hope lies in Christ. Our hope lies in Christ's obedience to the Word of God, not ours. I want to remind you there was another temptation by this same serpent under a different guise. This time I know he wasn't a snake on a branch. You can read about it in the Gospels. Three of the Gospels tell about Jesus being tempted in the wilderness at the beginning of his ministry. And Satan Apparently in his mind, whether there was a visible person there or not, Satan whispered in the mind of Jesus, you're hungry, you know who you are, make those stones become bread. You're the son of God, jump off a cliff and show the world in a great demonstration. And how did Jesus answer? He said, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. In other words, unlike Eve, he wasn't twisted around. He wasn't saying, oh, maybe God didn't really say what I think he said. He said, no, I will live by obeying every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And he did it. He did it. Matthew 5 has him saying, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, the least stroke of a pen will disappear from God's law until everything is accomplished. And he saw that as his own mission to accomplish. We say we're saved by the death of Christ on his cross. Of course, that's true. Of course, I don't deny that one iota. But we, ladies and gentlemen, are saved because the Christ who died on the cross also perfectly obeyed his Father's will. He never sinned. He conformed to the will of God and the Word of God without turning one bit from it. And that is our hope. Because we're going to disobey God's Word. We're going to renegotiate God's Word. We're going to say, oh, I'm a special circumstance. I have to do this even though the Bible says that. Oh, doesn't God want me to be happy? Adam and Eve saw what Scripture said. They renegotiated it, and they dragged all humanity down in their path. 
Jesus knew what God's word said, and he obeyed it to the letter. And because his obedience is able to be counted on my behalf, the word of God says, as if I did it myself, that solves my problem with the way I rebel at the word of God all the time because somebody obeyed it for me. Somebody called the second Adam. Jesus Christ, by obeying in my place, dying in my place, and rising in my place. He restored me. So when God comes in the cool of the garden at the eternal accounting day, I'm not going to have to run and hide from him. I'm going to turn and face him and say, Jesus did it for me. What a great thing God has done. Absolute conformity to his word fulfilled for every believer in Jesus Christ. Our Father, we face the fact that we're exactly like Eve, exactly like Adam. We know what you've said, but not doing what you've said is in, in pleasurable looking. It's enticing. It, it seems to offer us a fulfillment that we want. And so we acknowledge that we are disobeyers, nonconformists to your word, to your revelation. And we know it, but we do it anyway. Thank you for Christ. Thank you that our situation is not hopeless. That there is one who obeyed on our behalf. May his obedience be working in us, perfecting us, giving us maturity, giving us judgment that we could more and more at least approximate the things that you ask us to do for Jesus' sake. Amen.